This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was supposed to be about fashion. I think a lot about what our clothes say about us and what they convey to the world. What I wear has been a pretty monumental part of the class shift I've made. But then I talked to the two people who you're going to hear from today. They've both worked in the clothing and fashion industry. And those conversations, they ended up being about so much more than clothes. And more about who is considered classy and who has the power to say what classy actually is. From Pineapple Street Studios, this is, you guessed it, Classy. A show about the chasms between us that are really hard to talk about, but too big to ignore. I'm your host, Jonathan Menhivar. We're going to get started with this guy. His name is Amechi Ugwu. And I called him up because I knew he'd worked in retail, selling clothes and high-end menswear shops across the country. I was interested in that dynamic of being a salesman and selling really fancy suits and shoes to people with a lot of money. Amechi first got into clothes when he was in college. Back then, he was experimenting a lot, and some of his clothes were pretty wild. I can describe to you one outfit that everybody always remembers. I had on a horse jockey helmet. A helmet? Yeah, a horse horse jockey (laughs) helmet. Some mirrored aviator sunglasses. A satin gold bow tie. A dress military jacket some corn-colored corduroys, red socks, black patent leather shoes. I mean, just, if you can picture that outfit in your head, <laughs> what that might have looked like. Oh, I was having fun. Amechi grew up in Houston. His family was middle class. It was a mostly black neighborhood. And for college, he went to Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Southern University is a historically black college. And I remember sitting in the crowd, you know, at convocation. And I looked to my left and every my right and everybody's black. I look into the stands and everybody's black. I graduate on a Saturday. I start my first job the following Tuesday. And I remember being in the first uh, morning meeting and looking around. I was like damn, it's really just, it's just me now. <laughs> you know, it's just, I'm the only, I'm the only black person now. And that was a different experience. That was something that like 
in my life I had never experienced. I think from elementary school all the way to college, everybody was either black or Hispanic, majority. The shop Amici was working at was fancy. The kind of place featured in GQ magazine. His coworkers there, they were welcoming. And they all had to wear a kind of uniform, a blazer and Oxford shirt. Amici looked good in the clothes. He was wearing leather-soled shoes for the first time in his life. But pretty quickly, the fact that Amici was black became a thing between him and some of the guys he was working with. Not in any kind of overt way, but things would come up when they were standing around waiting for customers. Like if we were talking about cars, right? And um, everybody's super into the Ferraris and Porsches and, and uh, Lamborghinis, you know? And I was talking about, man, I want a 1976 Cadillac Eldorado. I want it to be silver. And, I, you know, I'll describe my own car, like what inspired me. You know, I think about like black exploitation films um, and, and just in, in the neighborhood. Like you grow up seeing like that was part of our culture was like taking these old school cars and fixing them up. Amechi would talk about the bright, shiny paint people used on the cars, the big sound systems. Those were the things that like really inspired me, like seeing those things. Like, man, it looked like a spaceship. I was like, look at that. Look at the car. It's like the hood of the car is super long. It's something about seeing those cars that like really, I wanted one. So to come to that group where they're talking about Ferrari and, and Porsche and, and Benzes and, and Rolls Royce, they were kind of like, what? <laughs> like, that Cadillac? They thought it was strange. Like, they were like, why would you want a Cadillac? And I was like, man, look at it. Like, <laughs> they didn't get it. Like, they just didn't understand. And what'd that feel like? It's like feeling rejected a little bit. You know, you like you present something that you're excited about or that you love and then people laugh at it. And it it kind of like puts you in a position where you kind of doubt yourself. You know, you're like, is this good? Like, should I mm-hmm. should I not? You know, like you start to look at your opinions or your ideas and question yourself. And it was frustrating because I wanted to be myself, but uh, you also, in a sense, want to be a part of the, the team, you right. know, and you want to feel like the things that you think are, are cool that somebody else is like, I see what you're talking about. You know, they can relate to it in some way. Um, but sometimes it felt like they wouldn't even try, even though I learned a lot about Porsches and Ferraris and Rolls <laughs> Royces. And, you know, I learned a lot about it. car thing. It wasn't just a matter of not fitting in and having his taste questioned. It's actually important to the job. Relating to customers, having some sort of shared understanding of the things you're into. That's how you sell clothes. In luxury fashion, a lot of your job as a salesperson when they walk in is not necessarily trying to sell them this one item, but to to connect with them and make them feel like they belong here and this is where they want to buy it. And I think it was when I started having conversations with these people that I started to get 
a better understanding of like how different we were. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, me and the wife went to the country club and we were, you know, played some rounds of tennis and then we had brunch and then we did da, da, da. And it's like, that's not a part of my brand. I don't, you know, I don't know anybody who went to brunch when I was, <laughs> when I was growing up. Selling clothes to guys who were driving Rolls Royces, this kind of power dynamic. Amici found it intimidating. He says he kind of folded in on himself at first. But over time, it went away because he developed this way to combat that feeling. You know, growing up in in my community, we have a way of still being able to, like, find our own worth, regardless of what such and such or whoever might have. You know... (laughs) You can't tell me I'm not that guy because I don't have money. Like, you may have money, you may have the cars, whatever, but I'm flyer than you. I dress better than you. I look better than you. You know, like, all of these things you find to, like, I ain't worried about, you know, what such and such has when he walks in the door. And that became, like, the attitude that I, I had to tap into. Amechi worked at this store for a few years. And then he moved to New York and started working at an even higher-end menswear store. That kind of place where you can't just walk out the door with clothes. You got to get measured and have them all tailored and everything. This shop was a little more international. There were Asians from all over the world and some white guys. So it was a little bit of a mixed bag. And then again, just me. Still the only black guy. Here, there weren't people actively questioning Amechi's taste. But still, being the only black guy, he found himself kind of hemmed in, trying to follow some unspoken rules about the way he should behave. All that standard code switching that people of color often have to do in situations like this. But maybe weirder, there seemed to be these rules that the other employees in the store were following about the way they should behave around him. There were times when it was really apparent that some of my white coworkers had never worked with black people before. Like they didn't know how to what to do with themselves. You know, like it, it manifests itself as like overcompensation. I mean, sometimes it would be like just overpraising me, you know, like, oh, you're doing this so well. You're doing that. It's like, man, I literally just put the shoes on the shelf. Like, why are you doing, like, (laughs) you know? So it's in this environment that something happens one day that really shakes Amechi. It makes him question all the ways he's been adjusting himself to fit in. It was a really quiet day. We didn't have a whole lot going on in the shop. And um, this guy walks in and immediately when he walks in, everybody's ears kind of perk up because dude kind of looks like he's homeless and tells everybody he wants to get a suit. So they're like, all right, they start putting suits on him. You know, he's trying on everything. He eventually ends up with a whole kit on. Shirt, jacket, shoes, socks, tie, whole thing. And he puts it on. He's looking in the mirror. He's like, oh, yeah, man, I like it. 
He's like, I'll take it. And we're all kind of like, wait, because all of the clothes at this shop uh, come unfinished. So the hem on the pants is not done. The sleeves are not done. And it looks like at this point, the suit is swallowing him a little bit. Amici is standing off to the side watching all this happen. The guy tells the salesmen that are helping him that he'll take the suit as is. He wants to walk out wearing it. So he gets up to the counter and they ring everything up. Comes out to a couple thousand dollars. And um, he starts looking for his wallet after we give him the total. He's like patting his pockets and we're like, oh man. (laughs) I think in the back of everybody's mind, we're like, he ain't got no wallet. And he starts patting his pockets. He's like, maybe I left it in the dressing room. He goes back in the dressing room. There's no wallet. And um, we're preparing for something to, to happen. We're like, all right, he can't find his wallet. Like, this is the point where he just, like, breaks for the door and tries to tackle somebody, you know? So, you know, we kind of get into this formation that lets him know, like, you know, we're all here. We're all paying attention. We're all alert. And um, you can kind of see him looking around and checking. He sees somebody at the door. He sees somebody standing next to him. The guy at the, at the counter is just kind of like waiting, like, what you going to do? And then he just kind of pauses and says, you know what? Uh, I guess I'm, I'm just going to come back. You know, I got to go find my wallet. And goes back to the fitting room, takes everything off and leaves. Never comes back. That was a particularly strange, like, scenario for me because the guy happened to be black. I had my own, you know, there was my own ideas, my own thoughts that were that were happening while this was going. And I think one of them was feeling like, Oh, man, why is this guy coming in here and and doing this? Why is he making us look bad? You know, that's that's what's going through my head at the time. It was unfair. That was, I mean, to say that, like in hindsight, that's an unfair way to look at that. Um, but that was that was what I was thinking at that time. Did you guys talk about it after the guy left? I think when he walked out the door, everybody just kind of stared at each other for like 30 seconds. We were just like <laughs> trying to figure out exactly what, you know, what just happened. Yeah. Um, that was something I more had to sit with on my own. And I don't I don't even think I talked to any friends about it or or really got to like hash that out with anybody. What is the making us look bad? What, what, in what way were you thinking like he's making us look bad? I think I understand, but. Uh, well, you know, like there's this idea in, in the black community that like we always have to be on our best behavior. Like we all have to be doing, you know, doing the right thing. Like, you know, a white person or anybody, it doesn't have to necessarily be somebody white, but they experience like a black person, one black person or two or five. And then they say black people are this, 
or they behave like that or black people are always doing this. So where I was coming from when I thought that was, you know, like this is just another strike on that, you know, on that list. You know, someone who's not black experiencing a black person in this way and them putting that like, oh, they black people, da, da, da. And this is in my mind. This may not even be what these other people were thinking, but this is just because of how I'm experiencing the world and people who look like me have experienced the world. This is what's going through my mind. I may, and and with all my coworkers, with all of the people that we work with, I might be the only black person they ever interact with, you know, in their life. And I just think about like those space. I, I think in that space, I was thinking, well, like we're never here. So when we do show up, it needs to be in the best light. Did that make you think anything at all about the way that, uh, it's different, but in some ways you had to be on your best behavior at these places. Like you couldn't be 100% authentically who you were. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like that. And maybe some of that might have been in my head too, you know, thinking that I couldn't be myself. And maybe I could have been, and they would have been totally accepting of it, uh-huh. you know? That's quite possible. Um, But I think at that time... I don't think I ever felt comfortable completely, you know, 100% being myself because there was still a little bit of of discomfort for me in being the only black guy. Like being the only black person, I still feel like there were certain topics, certain subjects that I would only want to talk about with other black people or only want to hear the perspective of certain people. Um, I mean, and, and like I, I think about that scenario that I just told you about is like I, I couldn't imagine ever having that conversation with somebody or telling somebody about my thoughts and how I felt with somebody who wasn't black uh, until now. (laughs) Because if you don't come from that or understand why I might have thought that, it would be hard for you to understand where I was coming from or how to rationalize what it was I was saying. Mechi Ugwu no longer works at that shop in New York. His last retail job was in 2020. In some ways, he's returned to a place where he's not having to think about things like this all the time. He now runs his own brand making sportswear for HBCUs. It's called Torch Sportswear. Where I am now, I don't think I'll ever work another retail job. I pray that I never have to work in retail again. But... I know that if that day ever came, my approach would be a lot different, you know? How I would move in that space and how I would present myself would be different than I have in the past. I can't compress myself anymore. I'm never gonna fully understand what it was like for Amechi in that moment. But it makes so much sense. I think you probably understand it to some degree, too. But I have had experiences where the combination of race and class has made me do things that I have questioned. 
I'm a pretty white-passing Latino. I grew up with the culture. My first language was Spanglish. But my Spanish is pretty broken now. Sometimes people don't know I'm Latino until I tell them. Like this one time at work, someone pointed at my face after I told them, and they said, I knew there was something going on there. The thing that's happened for me, the way that I have, frankly, gotten a little confused, I guess, when it comes to race and class, is that when I decided that I wanted a life where I could be creative and not have to do manual labor, I mostly looked to white people and white culture. But like odd, dorky pockets of white culture. Like when I was a teenager, one of my first exposures to journalism, the thing I would watch whenever it was on TV, was this guy, Huel Hauser. He was from Tennessee, and he'd travel all over California with a microphone, doing features on things like making peanut brittle. Right. Now we're going to pour it out? That's right. There you go. Oh, look! <laughs> now that's peanut brittle. That's peanut brittle. There's other stuff, too. I'm an Eagle Scout. I wore that uniform until I was 18 years old. But maybe the strangest thing I got into, I think I am very embarrassed to confess right now, is that for a year or two when I was in high school, I had a subscription to Country Living Magazine. (laughs) I think maybe it started because I was into REM, and they were from the South. Or maybe I just wanted out of my house, out of my boring suburban town. And the country somehow seemed appealing. I don't know. But one day in the grocery store, I picked up this magazine, and I I just couldn't get enough. There was feature after feature of nice, proper little houses out in the country somewhere with everything decorated just so. I thought it was so classy. It was like Dwell Magazine if Colonel Sanders was the editor-in-chief. I loved it. And you know, people of color are allowed to consume whatever culture they want. All this nerdy white stuff, it influenced me deeply. It still does. My daughter makes fun of me because I will watch hours and hours of that home renovation show, Hometown. That's basically country living on HGTV. The part of all of this that feels upsetting is that when I was looking for an escape hatch, I didn't see any examples of Latinos out there. They were there in music and film and literature, even journalism. I know that now. But they weren't on the TV. They weren't mainstream. This was all happening at a time when anti-immigrant fervor was raging in California. Voters had overwhelmingly supported Prop 187, basically taking away all social services for undocumented immigrants. And kids at my school were openly talking to me about Mexicans stealing jobs and living off of welfare. At the same time, some people in my own family were calling me a huero for living in the suburbs and being into the things I was into. I think in some ways, through some combination of all of that, I internalized that Latinos didn't deserve better. That we didn't deserve nice things. Coming up, 
Someone helps me see that we do. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i'm bobby finger and i'm Lindsay weber and i want to tell you about a podcast i think you're going to love who weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't does celebrity news stress you out are there too many people you've literally never heard of Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. All right, Jonathan, back here, your very classy host. Brenda Akihua is a luxury fashion designer in L.A. Her work has been featured in Vogue and the L.A. Times. Bad Bunny and Lil Nas X have worn her stuff. But it took her a while to get to that place. Her journey into the world of fashion started in high school when she applied to Parsons, the art and design college in New York. I'd heard of that school just through overhearing someone's conversation. That's how I heard about that fashion school. Someone at school? Yeah, someone at school. So I'm a very curious person, and that's how I've acquired 90% of the information has been through nosiness, you know? 
<laughs> I'm a professional chismosa. <laughs> That's used this information for good reasons. A chismosa is a gossip, and you could call Brenda a chismosa, but really, what she was was an observer. The trait she picked up from her mom. Brenda grew up in Santa Barbara, California. It's a town right on the beach, super affluent. Brenda was being raised by her single mom there in a Latino community that was mostly employed working for the rich, mostly white people in town. Brenda's mom cleaned houses, and sometimes Brenda would come along with her, and she'd see firsthand the way her mom was actively studying these people's lives. So my mom would always show us, like, oh, look, you know, smell this perfume. It smells really good. We should get this. Or... I've seen this crema at this other lady's house, so this must be really good, you know? And so we learned through this sort of unauthorized access what good products were that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Brenda's mom would do the same at yard sales. She'd drive to rich neighborhoods and buy up all the brand name clothing they couldn't normally afford. She got Brenda fancy, almost over-the-top stuff. Fur coats, this pleated vintage dress from the 30s. In my world, having a crocodile alligator clutch, you know, in junior high was totally normal. Her mom would indulge in nice clothes too, living out a life where she was saying that you can be classy no matter where you come from. My mom was wearing evening gowns, like, to my fifth grade parties that were outside in the dusty, like, environment of our apartment complex. And she'd be decked out for our parties. Like, she was like my Beyonce. And now that I'm older, I'm like, that's so cool that she was like that because maybe in her mind she knew that she might not ever have the opportunity to wear that gown to whatever is considered acceptable. So, Chismosa Brenda, she overhears about this fashion school in New York. She applies to Parsons, she gets in. She can't afford to visit New York before she goes. Really, can't afford the school. But the community rallies around her to help her cover some costs. And once she's there, she's overwhelmed by the level of wealth. There are students from all over the world, and they are wealthy in a way that even growing up in Santa Barbara, she'd never seen. I had a friend who told me that, you know, back home, she'd come out of the shower and all of her clothes was already laid out for her. Who, who laid out her clothes? Uh, her workers. But the thing she really notices, the thing she struggles with, is that at Parsons, all the reference points come from white culture. It's in the designers they're being taught about and the classic films they're being shown. Some of the movies were like Gone with the Wind and Some Like It Hot. You go. What shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And... These were the things that you were supposed to know, right? Like the Marilyn Monroe, Catherine Hepburn, you know, what are considered American classic 
icons and movies. It was good education. Like I was, I was happy to learn it because I didn't really have a lot of exposure to that. I mean, I did grow up watching classic films, but they were Mexican ones. They were movies with Pedro Infante and Maria Felix. And then, of course, we're in New York, so it was all about being chic, and it was about Calvin Klein and Donna Karen and Jill Sander, and it was about being sleek and chic and clean-cut. Brenda says she was in survival mode at Parsons. She was scraping money together to buy fabric for her projects. She was basically just eating bagels with cream cheese for every meal. And on this tight budget and under stress, she couldn't make work that matched the garments she was seeing in her head. She started failing classes. And as this was happening, I remember I went on a walk one day with one of the guys that I was in class with, and I shared with him my story of how I was being failed, and he told me that he had a woman that lived with him that cooked for him, cleaned for him, and sewed all of his projects for him. And I'm just listening to this story thinking, our worlds are so drastically different. I can't even believe that we're being graded by the same standards. Brenda eventually finds her stride. She manages to get through Parsons. After she graduates, she gets a couple different jobs working in the industry as a designer. But she finds that working in the fashion world is like Parsons the reboot. There's money, there's whiteness. She's working in fashion, but she's miserable. The people she really connects with are the pattern makers who are working class, mostly Asian and Latino. She really values the level of skill they're bringing to the work. But still, she wants to build something of her own. And then one day, she's with her family. They're driving to Six Flags Magic Mountain. Her brother's at the wheel. And she says, Turn the music down. I have an announcement. I have something I want to tell you guys. So they turned the music down, and I told them, I have this crazy idea. I want to make jackets and outerwear out of cobija blankets. Okay, Latinos, disculpame un minuto. Cobijas are these blankets that are super popular in the Latino community. They're soft, thick, plushy, and... Probably the most notable thing about them is that they're loud. You can get them with almost anything printed on them. Lakers logo, the Virgin Mary. A lot of them have exotic animals. Tigers and lions and wolves and cheetahs and wild horses and tigers and unicorns and tigers. So many tigers. I still have some that I've had since I was a kid. They're also pretty cheap. So with this idea... The next day, Brenda goes to her studio and gets to work right away. She wants to take Gobihas and turn them into something luxurious. I built a pattern. I figured out what what you know what I needed to do 
first and tried to figure out the steps. And I knew that it logistically it was going to be a hot disaster. Okay, I, I understand you like have this vision, but why? Like, why do you want to take this thing that is seen as cheap and kind of even like low class if people even know about it at all? Why do you want to take that and turn it into a coat? Gosh, you know, I mean, it's my story. I feel like it's very much me, right? Like I came from that world. And then I learned all of these things, like all of like ways of seeing that were a bit different. And when I thought about the blankets, a part of me felt like, damn, I really don't want this to disappear. Is any of it at all a kind of fuck you to a culture that sort of rejected you for a while? Oh, absolutely. My life has been a series of fuck yous at every environment that I've been in. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's always been me. I've always been like with my finger out in every environment. That's why I'm like, I don't care if I belong. I'm going to be here. This is where I need to be. Growing up in Santa Barbara and, and going to, to school at Parsons and being in the industry, it was um, always felt like this very curated experience by other people that didn't feel relatable to me. And I was like, how do I change that? Like, this isn't right. This doesn't feel good. I'm so jealous of people like this who can walk through the world giving the bird and relying on the strength of that. That ability to deflect rejection with your middle fingers like they're Wonder Woman's bracelets. I've tried being angry, but all it ever got me was bitterness and calluses. Instead, I've kept my middle fingers in my pockets and tried to blend in. For me, that seemed like the classiest way to get by. But I don't know. Now I'm not so sure. about to try on the devotion coat. Unfortunately, I was stuck in my closet with all my lame clothes while I was talking to Brenda. But my producer Kristen was there in Brenda's studio in LA, surrounded by all her Cobija-inspired clothes. Kristen pulled out a full-length hooded coat. It's deep red with roses all over the front and a big-ass Virgin Mary on the back. Oh my gosh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow, oh my gosh. It's like butter. Huh? <gasps> Brenda, fashion, you know? oh this is like my bread. god. It's like eating bread, <gasps> but in clothing. Wow, I look so fine. The pockets are perfect. Right? The moment I put my arm in the sleeve, I felt like... <laughs> euphoric. Like, it, right? like, I just felt like my arm just dipped into some, like, comfort puddle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what we try to do. Wow. It's a very These coats are so nice. Anybody who's spent winters snuggled under Gobiha's lusts after them. But I wondered how Brenda felt taking this blanket you can get for $40, this working-class immigrant luxury item, and turning it into coats that some of them 
They sell for more than $700. These coats don't have to be that price. I make them that price because of all the work and the details that I put into it. You know, like we buy all of our zippers here in LA because they're the best zippers that I could find. So they are expensive because I make them more expensive than they should be through my choices. And that is my education. That is me. Like that is how I grew up. I wanted to have nice things. I like how nice things feel. I like having them in my home. I like touching nice things. I like looking at them. So I make things that look and feel good. You know, we've never been given the authority to be the curators of style. And that's sort of what I feel like I want to do loudly. Hearing Brenda say this, it had a profound effect on me. Just hearing someone say it's okay to have nice things and that those nice things don't have to be what mainstream culture says they are. A lot of us Latinos, because we grew up with people who didn't have nice things and because the images of Latinos that we see most often are people who are suffering working their asses off, desperately trying to build new lives. Sometimes it feels like an abandonment to want. But I want. It wasn't immediately after this interview, but sometime in the making of this show, I put on this old gold chain my dad had given me when I was a teenager. When he first gave it to me, it didn't feel right. It wasn't my wet vibe at the time. But a few weeks ago, I dug the chain out of a little box in my nightstand, and I put it on, and it looked right. I know gold chains aren't solely the domain of Latinos, just like country living isn't just for white people. But this one is. It's gold, and it's a little loud, and it looks good on me. Okay, here we are. We've been talking about class for three episodes, and man, it is even clearer to me now than when we started that class can be so sticky and uncomfortable. And, you know, nobody's perfect. No matter what our class background is, we are all bound to cross some lines and make mistakes, maybe even offend people. And... I don't necessarily have all the answers for what to do in those situations. But I know someone who might be able to help. He's going to answer your questions. That's on the next episode of Classy. Classy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and produced by me, Jonathan Menhivar. Our producer is Kristen Torres, associate producer Marina Henke. Senior Managing Producer, Asha Saluja. Our editor is Haley Howell. Executive Editor, Joel Lovell. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. 
Senior engineers are Marina Pais and Pedro Alviera. Fact-checking by Tom Colligan. This episode was mixed and scored by Marina Pais with additional scoring by me. Music in this episode from Joseph Shabasan, courtesy of Western Vinyl. Joseph Shabasan and Vibrant Matter and Shabasan and Gunning, courtesy of Seance Center. Additional music from Epidemic Sound. Our artwork is by Kurt Courtney and Lauren Vira at Cadence 13. Marketing and promotion by Grace Cohen Chen, Hilary Schuff, and Liz O'Malley. Legal services for Pineapple Street Studios by Crystal Tupia at Odyssey. Special thanks to Jeremy Kirkland. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The next episode will be out in a week. Make sure to listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.